Good morning. It's a joy to be here. If you raised your hand that you read the book, you need to repent. I doubt you. You, you lied, right? <laughs> hey, wow, last night was super special. I'm honored that we would be here. This morning, I'll share a little bit about my story and a little bit about the backstory for that blue book that you all were given. It started, I was a business major in college. Went to school at Biola University, California, small Christian school. Uh, studied business. I was a marketing major. My wife, who's sitting over here, was an accounting major. Uh, not really sure where that would go. And I ended up selling copiers after school. Not a sexy job. I was a little embarrassed of it. People would say, oh, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm in sales. What do you sell? <clears throat> copiers, right? <laughs> Not real proud of it. Uh, it, it was a great experience for me. I was dealing with executives and business people all the time. And uh, about a year and a half into it, God had used it to help us pay off our student loans. And uh, we started asking the question, what's next? I looked up the company org chart, and I didn't want to be this guy in five years, or this guy in 10 years, or this guy in 15 years, and so I knew I had a problem on my hands, and began to just pray and seek the Lord, saying, God, what do you want me to do? And through seeking some wise counsel from my mentors, I went back to school and went to seminary, studied, uh, got a Master of Divinity degree at Talbot School of Theology, and after that, uh, it was 2009, I was 29 years old, we didn't have a house, we didn't have children yet, and so I said to my wife, Renee, what do we do now? What would you like to do? And she said, ever since I was 13 years old, I've always had a dream to travel all the way around the world in a single shot. I said, let's do it. So we put all of our stuff in storage, no mortgage. We just loaded it up in storage, looked at a world map, began to dot the places that we'd like to visit. We began to dot the places then where we'd say, oh, we know some missionaries there. We should visit them. We have some family friends who are serving there. Let's stop by and see them. So for four and a half months, we traveled around the world. It was an unbelievable experience. I can tell you more about that sometime. Uh, but it was on that trip, we were in India visiting some really good friends of ours who are missionaries. And a friend said, hey, if you ever go to Sydney, Australia, you should meet a friend, of, a friend of mine named Simon and ask him about something called gospel patronage. And I said, I don't even know what that is. <laughs> he said, don't worry, just ask him. So I said, we actually had plans already to go to Sydney. Uh, we had plane tickets booked. And so we got to Sydney, and we'd been traveling. We'd been in Africa. We had jeans and sweatshirts on. And, you know, you just have a backpack, so we didn't have much. And everyone downtown Sydney was in blue and black suits, and we went up to Simon's office and met him. And he said, hey, let's get coffee. So we had a cup of coffee with him, and somewhere between his coffee and my hot chocolate, I said, Simon, so what is gospel patronage? And he said, well... When we look at history and we see how God has really moved the gospel forward, when there have been those big movements of history where we say, wow, God just showed up, whether that was the Reformation or great revivals in history, he said, we tend to think of the pioneering leader, you know, that, that front man, the spokesperson, the one on the stage with the microphone who was an incredible preacher or a wonderful evangelist or a well-known missionary. And he said, but when we look closer into history, we see that those guys weren't lone rangers. They had patrons behind them. When God raises up a preacher or a missionary, he also raises up a patron. And those patrons have been largely forgotten throughout history. And most of them, I think, would be completely fine with that. They're in the shadows. They're behind the scenes. They're those backstage VIPs. But they had a huge part to play in history. And that day, he told us little nuggets of three stories. I'll share one of the stories uh, and how it plays out in the book. But one of the stories he said is, for example... 500 years ago, this did not exist. You have an English Bible, I'm guessing? Probably multiple at home. There was a time when the English Bible did not exist. You realize that? 
that it had been in Latin for a thousand years in Europe, meaning the Latin Vulgate from the fourth century to the 14th century. And the, the Roman church wanted to keep it that way. They thought Latin was an exalted language. You don't want to corrupt the common people by translating into more of the common speech. Uh, you don't want them interpreting it for themselves. We're going to interpret it for them. But in the 1500s, God raised up a man in England named William Tyndale. Tyndale was an incredibly gifted linguist. He went to Oxford, obviously knew Latin, studied biblical Greek, but he came from a family of business people, merchants, and he knew they didn't know Latin. They couldn't understand uh, what was happening in church. Everything in church was Latin. And God gave him this burning ambition to say, I've got to bring my nation an English Bible. They've only heard of God but it's been filtered. I want them to hear God speak for themselves. The problem was, 100 years prior, there had been a constitution that had outlawed Bible translation. It was equivalent to heresy. You could be killed for it. And so Tyndale had to take this very carefully, and uh, he went to London, sought patronage from a high church official, thinking, if I can get this guy to, to be my patron, then we can maybe sidestep some of the laws and constitutions. And that man said no. Tyndale didn't know what to do. Have you ever been at a place in your life where God's given you a dream? He's given you a burden? Something that we heard about like Bruce and Sue last night that feels a little risky and it feels a little uncomfortable, but you're pretty clear he's calling you to do it? And Maybe you don't know if you have the time or you don't know if you have the faith or you don't know if you have the resources to pull it off. That's exactly where Tyndale was 500 years ago, saying, I have this burden. If I don't do it, no one will. But he didn't know what to do until a wealthy merchant heard him preach at a church on Fleet Street in London. And the merchant approached him, and through the grapevine, he said, Tyndale, I've heard God's given you a job to do. It's time you get to work. Come, live at my house. I'll support you. I'll protect you. I'll provide for you. Get to work. So for six months, Tyndale was diligently translating the Bible night and day. Meanwhile, living with this businessman, a merchant, and he was having lots of other business people circle through his home, many of whom heard what was going on in Europe and heard the rumblings of the Reformation happening with Luther's German Bible, which had just come out a year before. Tyndale finished his translation, and the best printers were all in Europe and the continent, and so they sent, used his merchant ships to get Tyndale over to the continent. And then after about a year, he pops up again in history, and he's at the printer, and he's getting it done. I think he went to spend a year with Luther and say, you did this a year ago. You did this in German. Help me do this in English. So he pops up with uh, the first 3,000 copies of the English New Testament. There's one or two remaining today. You can actually see it at the British Museum. I've seen it. I tried to use my credentials as an author. To, can, can I please go, uh, get behind the glass here and, and see this? And they said, uh, no, this is code Z. I'm like, yes, but I've written a book on this and I really care. No, we don't care. <laughs> so they didn't let me see it, but you can see it behind some really thick glass. It's a small book, small book, like a journal almost, but it was the first English New Testament translated from the original Greek and Hebrew. Right, well, Greek, Hebrew is the Old Testament. Well, when it was finished, this merchant stepped back into the scene and funded Tyndale saying, well, this is still an illegal book. This is contraband. And so they put the book, these 3,000 copies, they dropped them in barrels of oil and wine in these watertight cases. They would occasionally smuggle them in layers of cloth as they're doing their business transactions, and they put them on the merchant ships and smuggled them up the arteries and the waterways and into the ports all over England. And the Bible began to get out. 
It was sold on the black market, and a farmer would say, hey, I bought a couple of pages. Come over to my house, and he would gather his friends. Another, one would, another man would, you know, common men were buying the Bible and having their friends say, let's read it. Let's hear God speak. And that sparked the English Reformation. Once there was an appetite for God's word in the language of the people, it couldn't be stopped. But Tyndale was still a man in exile, still on the run. He lived the rest of his life never again setting foot in England. His patron, Humphrey Monmouth, who had funded this and partnered with him through it, ended up in prison in the Tower of London one of, on 25 different charges, one of which was funding and supporting William Tyndale. He was eventually released, but Tyndale's fate wasn't so good. He had a Judas-type figure in his life, earn his trust, sneak in there, say, let's go out to dinner. And as they walked out to dinner, uh, the man had stationed two guards out this long corridor and said, Tyndale, you go first. And they came out the doorway, and the man pointed down. And the soldiers quickly grabbed Tyndale and took him off to Vilvord Prison, where he spent 450 days. Meanwhile, the merchants who, business people, his best friends, were trying to rally for him, but nobody wanted to protect this heretic. Nobody wanted to try to put their legacy on the line to set him free. And Tyndale, we have one record of what he wrote during that time. He wrote a letter to his prison warden. And he said, it's, it's in the book, you can look at it. Uh, I won't quote it exactly, but he says, it's so cold here. It's so lonely in this cell, and I trust that God has me here. But if you would be so gracious, please bring me a warmer cap, and a warmer coat, and warmer leggings. And most of all, can you bring me a Hebrew Bible or Hebrew grammar and a Hebrew dictionary? Tyndale's in prison trying to finish the Old Testament and bring it into English. That was interrupted. He was one day brought out to be um, killed as a heretic, and they put his back against a wooden post, and it's a public execution. They uh, you know, padded, padded his legs with all kind of brushwood and fire, and they had this chain that was going to come through the post and wrap around his neck, and it was that final minute, you know, before they, the prison warden nodded and said, pull that noose tight, and Tyndale's last words were, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. King of England didn't want an English Bible. But his final prayer is praying for his king and praying for his Bible to expand. They pulled the noose tight, strangled him. He died, then they burned his body alive in public. And he never got to see what happened. His patron died a year later, almost as if now his mission too, had been completed. But two years later, the King, of, the King of England authorized that an English Bible be put in every parish church in England. Seventy-five years later, the King James translators relied 80 to 90 percent directly on Tyndale, just pulled it over. He was that amazing of a linguist and a translator. And 75 years later, with the way language changes, they could just pull over 80 to 90 percent. And every English Bible we read today finds its headwaters in Tyndale. Tyndale gave his nation, six million English speakers in the world, this book. King James' Bible went on to become the most influential book in Western civilization for 450 years. It was the only Bible translation that Americans and Britons and Australians took all over the place. When they went missionary trips, when they went to India, they took their Bible. 
now over 600 million English speakers like you and me have the privilege to open this book and hear God speak. My question is, what would have happened had the patron not said, Tyndale, get to work? We may not have this book. We may not be here. We heard stories like this that day in Sydney, Australia, and uh, it was like taking a drug. <laughs> I was never taking a drug in my life, but I was on, I was on high that day. Right? <laughs> we were lit up, floating on air, my wife and I walking around Sydney, Australia to say, I studied business at a Christian university. I've studied theology. I've never seen this wedded so beautifully. Giving is not an obligation, it's an opportunity. And these patrons throughout history knew that and they found their part to play. You know, uh, my life has been changed through the process of researching these uh, patrons. For the last three years, I've been going to libraries like Oxford and Cambridge, trying to dig into history behind the scenes and say, how did God use these patrons? What can I dig up from history to see where they came from and how their partnerships really worked? Because when these two people came together, it was explosive in history. And my life is saying, God, it, just, it seems like you don't make people like that anymore. It just seems like those people, could, could they live again today? Could we be those kind of people? Whether you're more on the ministry side, you're the preacher, you're the translator, you're the Bible teacher, or you're the patron whose name is unknown, whose business is profitable, and who's personally involved in the spread of the gospel, deeply involved from the shadows. You know, I, this book wouldn't have been possible except that God provided in his grace a gospel patron for me. I, I came back and I heard these stories and I said, these have to be told. These have to be told in our generation. So I sent an email to the, my friend Simon and said, please, I know this is on your 10-year plan. I can't wait 10 years. Please get this book out. And he said, let's do it together. Okay. And then he, big business, four kids. He had to drop off and I was unsure what was going to happen. And I was praying about it. My family thought it was nuts. So you went to seminary and you have a business degree. Are you applying for jobs? No. <laughs> okay, but you could be a pastor or youth minister, right? I guess. But if I don't write this book, no one else is going to. And God, like, I felt like Tyndale constrained to do this. And a man in my church who I had no idea what his capacity was said, um, why don't you come over to my house? Had a glass of wine, sat in the hot tub. And yeah, it's a nice house. And, uh, and he said, hey, um, I know that when I stand before God someday, he's going to ask me, what did you do with what I gave you? He goes, you know, honestly, I'd love to be able to say, hey, God, I got the English Bible into existence, but that's already taken. <laughs> and he goes, so I'd love to say that I got your book into existence. I'd love to say that I put your book into play. And now we can watch and see what God does. And God raised up another patron to buy 300 copies of the book so that you can all enjoy it for free. If you want an extra copy, there's extra in the lobby. They're free. It's all been paid for. Why? Here's why. God wants you to play your part. He wants you to run your race. You may not be the richest man. You may not be the most generous. You may be sitting here a little resistant to what he wants to do. But he's got a part for all of us to play. 
maybe behind the scenes, it may be on stage with a microphone. But what we've seen throughout history is that when people find their part to play and these partnerships begin to happen, God does amazing things. Tyndale didn't get to see it and his patron didn't get to see it and you might not get to see it, but God gets to see it. And generational impact happens because people choose to give. Because they put it on the line and say, like, like Ruth, uh, or no, Bruce and Sue last night saying, okay, God, it's uncomfortable, but I want to take this risk with you. I want to just take the next step in faith with you. That's what I've done with the book too. For me now, my, my responsibility is to steward the treasure of these stories. To say, we're not reinventing, we're not starting something new here with generous giving. God's been doing this all throughout history. Jesus had gospel patrons, it says in Luke chapter 8. The Apostle Paul had Phoebe and said, he says, thank her for she's been a patron of many and of myself as well. But throughout history, God has used patrons and we don't often hear about them. I'm trying to raise the flag for our generation to say, God, use us again. Use us again. Do something wonderful through our lives, through my life. You can make people like that still. We can serve your purposes in our generation. It's been a wonderful journey. I'd love to chat with more of you. We'll be here all weekend. Uh, but let me just close in prayer. God, you're an awesome and mighty God. You have done amazing things in history. And we're here now saying, use us, call us, send us, speak to us. I pray you'd use these stories from history again to ignite us in our generation, to play our part, to run our race. Jesus, would you do things in this conference this weekend that we can't yet imagine, that you would spark things here as significant as the English Bible being put into existence, that you would put dreams in our hearts, that the young men would see visions and the old men would dream dreams that you'd raise up people to say, this is my part, this is my calling, and I'm gonna run that race as well as I can, as fast as I can for as long as I can by the strength which God supplies. God, we're so grateful to be here. Stir our hearts for you, for the things of you, that we could say one generation is telling of your awesome deeds to the next. In Jesus' name, amen.